0: title of today's message is When God Whispers Your Name. And we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. As I was preparing this sermon, I was uh, taken back to when I was studying in Bible school. They told us a lot of the ways that a pastor should be with this congregation. And one of those things that they told me was that a pastor should never tell his congregation about the personal struggles that they're having or that they've had in their life. And I always found that that advice to be a a little bit troublesome because the Bible tells us of the failures and the struggles of some of the great spiritual giants that have lived before us. But for some reason, conventional wisdom among today's pastors is that we are to hide everything from everybody. But I'm so glad that the authors of the Bible did not believe that. Because if we, they did believe that, the Bible would probably be a lot shorter, and we'd lose the depth of seeing the people as they were. They were people. They were people just like you and me. I mean, just think about David. Think about everything the Bible says about King David. The Bible records his wins, his losses, and all of his huge mistakes and all the great technicolor for us to see. The Bible also shows us that our Lord Jesus, our God himself, was struggling and had different periods of struggle in his life. It shows his temptation. It shows his struggle in Gethsemane. It shows him even becoming a little short-tempered with his disciples or violently angry with people who went into the temple courts and, and fleeced people out of their money like the money changers were doing. So I ask myself, you know, why am I, as a pastor, better than my master Jesus. So I'm gonna break that rule today and I'm gonna share a very trying and even dark time that happened in my life because I think it could be encouraging to somebody here or somebody even listening to the podcast who also might be groping their way through a dark valley without any hint of a light at the end. So I'm gonna take you back to the year of 2004. It's December. I was working for, as a paramedic for a company named Medics. I had been working there for most of my paramedic career, and we were told right before Christmas that the company going out of business. And I was devastated. I had worked very hard to try to build this company up, to try to get it more business, to try to support the business that we had at the time, but the owner just wouldn't listen to reason and wouldn't listen to sound business principles, and he ran it into the ground. And had no choice other than to sell it to an even worse ambulance company, as it turned out. I decided to try it out with the new company. I stayed on for a bit uh, to see if I can make it work. But by mid-January, most of the other paramedics had left. And I decided that I had to go and apply at our chief competitor. And that was a hard pill to swallow because I had been fighting with this competitor for years trying to keep our business from going to them. So I started work at Paratech in February of 2006 as a rookie paramedic. After being the ALS manager, the second in command under the owner of the old company, I went from that to being a rookie again. And at the same time that that was happening, things were coming ahead at our first church. Tammy and I had been there for 13 years and we had served kind of an undefined pastoral and intermittent interim pastor role for six years because they went through a couple of senior pastors. Now a new pastor had been called and a sizable portion of the congregation was not behind him. And they were coming to me complaining about him. That led to a very uncomfortable confrontation with the new senior pastor and then I had to go before the board. And so I decided to take it to prayer of, of what I was supposed to do. And I felt the Lord was leading me to resign from that church in order to allow that new senior pastor to have that fresh start. The word the Lord gave me was, you need to decrease so that he can increase. However, I had no leading of where I was to go after that. He just, God just told me to obey and to resign. He gave me no direction, no plan for the future. You just need to obey and leave. There's one problem with that, though. As that was an independent Pentecostal church, I was ordained through that church alone. So as soon as I leave that church, I have to lay down my ministry credentials and the title of pastor. As I was thinking about that, I'm going... God, did I misunderstand your call? Didn't you call me to the ministry? Or did you just call me to the ministry for these few years and and now I go on to a secular career? It was a a time of of being really mixed up in, in in what I was believing and what I believed my calling was and what I thought that God's plan was for my life. So I'm 36 years old. I'm starting over in my secular career. And that's not a good place to be at 36. And it's not a very wise career move. And my ministry career was gone. The thing I had majorly sacrificed for, I had studied for, gone for days without sleep for, I've used 80% of my available vacation hours for, the last several years was just, it was just up in smoke. And in both positions in life, in both jobs, it felt like all that work, all those hours, all that studying—it felt like I had wasted ten years of my life. And as men define themselves largely through their work, and although I still had my my marriage intact and my marriage was was fine, it was relatively healthy. I still felt in my in my in my other life, in that work life, that I was adrift in a light raft in the middle of the Pacific, with no hope or rescue or seeing land ever again. And in the biblical text today, Elijah is in this same position. In his case, Elijah has been the only prophetical check against the most wicked king and queen in Israel's history. Most of his ministry career has been about avoiding death by their hands as he repeatedly tries to tell them what God would say to them. And he's repeatedly being ignored by the people as he proclaims God's word over and over and over again to them. God even sends a severe drought into the land by Elijah's word to try to get the people to turn from their wicked ways and repent, and it's been um, incredibly without success up until this point. And all this comes to a head when God has him directly confront the idolatrous religious leaders of the false god Baal to a dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel. Most of us have read this story, but let's just review it. Elijah proposes a contest with these false priests. He said they're both going to build altars to sacrifice a bull on. You build your altar over here, I'm gonna build my altar over here, and whichever God answers by fire, that is the God of Israel. That is the one true God. So the prophets of Baal, they take them up on it. They go and they build their altar, they they put it wood on it, put the bowl on top of the wood, they start dancing around, they start saying, Baal, you know, let fire fall, you know, consume your sacrifice. And, and for hours and hours, they're dancing around this thing, and nothing is happening. So they start cutting themselves. They start doing all this witchcraft and voodoo stuff, and nothing happens. And Elijah's just standing over there next to his altar mocking them, just mocking them. Oh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's, maybe he's just busy or something. Maybe you just have to shout louder. And finally they got tired of it and Elijah prays one prayer and all of a sudden fire from heaven comes down, consumes the sacrifice that he had prepared and the people that were gathered around watching this this giant fiasco realized the error of their ways and acknowledged God as the true God of Israel. Furthermore, they decide that these guys that had led them astray, that had been calling God's judgment of drought upon them, need to die. So all those false priests are executed. There's revival in the land. That's a revival, isn't it? When people turn from their sin, come back to God, and want to worship him. And right after this confrontation at Mount Carmel, God tells Elijah, you can now pray for rain. And Elijah does, and the drought ends. Now, if you're Elijah, you're riding pretty high now, aren't you? All that work, all the sacrifice, everything you've done up until this point seems to be coming to a head. All this this work that you have done, the fruit is beginning to blossom on the trees. And things are looking up. But then a messenger comes. And this messenger says the king and queen are sending out hitmen to kill you. And by the way, that revival you thought that happened, the people fell right back into sin, Elijah. He's devastated. He's devastated. He's exhausted. Elijah's emotionally spent and now spiritually empty. Spiritually empty. Have any of you had that happen? You were riding this huge emotional high. Everything seems to be going great in life and all of a sudden the rug gets yanked right out from under you. I've had that happen several times to me. And Elijah does what most of us do when that happens. We run away from the situation. Elijah runs into the desert and is provided by God, who sends an angel to strengthen and feed him, and tells him, keep going. And for 40 days, he journeys further and further and further into the wilderness until he finds a cave to go and rest in. So Elijah's in the cave. He's alone. He's in the dark. He's cold which ironically matches a spiritual condition. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophet to death by the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood at the mount of the cave. And the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. And they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just take this scripture and use it to speak to the felt needs of our life. When we feel cold, when we feel apart from you, let us come to know the God that whispers our name in those circumstances. Lord God, I ask us in your name. Amen. As I said, the title of today's message is When God Whispers Your Name, and it's part of our series that we're in right now about being hidden in God. And last week we spoke about being purposeful, about going and being alone with God. And this week we are going to talk about God being purposeful to draw us in and be alone with us. And why does he do this? Why does God have his prophet here shivering in the dark alone in a cave? Because spiritual burnout is a very real condition. I know I've experienced it. Elijah's experienced it. And sooner or later, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will experience it. And this is about a God who loves you so much that even when you are at your lowest, even when you are questioning him and his plan and even when you feel like screaming into the heavens saying why did i just waste the best years of my life working for you and i got no reward for it no fruit for it and nothing to show for it god now by every human measure i'm further behind than when i started that's when god needs you to pull needs to pull you out of the battle for a while and put you in the cave until you can quiet your spirit and hear him whisper your name again. So let's go to the text and break this down a little. God asked him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And when I first read this scripture when I was a new Christian, I was thinking, what kind of a strange, weird question is that? isn't God the one who led him here? I mean, how, why is an all-knowing God asking him what seems to be a very obvious question? And I found as I studied Scripture that one of the most fascinating things about God, and it's particularly about Jesus, is that he rarely answers a question directly. And when he asks you a question, it's because he's, starting, he's trying to draw something out of you. You know if I was one of the 12 disciples, I think that would have driven me a little crazy about Jesus. Jesus could never answer a question directly, could he? He would ask you a question back or he would tell you a story. I'm a kind of person that just wants the facts. Give it to me straight and quick. I'm kind of like the rich young ruler, you know, it's like Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? And he tells you a 30-minute story. No, 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 no. What must I do? Just lay it out, give me bullet points. One, two, three, four, five, let me follow it and, and figure it out for myself. And what I found as I've lived this life is that it's kind of like years ago, the American Heart Association did a quick survey that found the people that took their CPR and their advanced medical classes only remembered 10% of what they were taught. 10%. After four hours of a CPR class or 16 hours of ACLS or PALS, Only 10% of the stuff was remembered. So they revamped everything, including the way that they educated their instructors. And we all had to go to a teaching the teacher class. And one of the things that they taught us was not simply to regurgitate information to people, but to draw out of them what they already know. The people know the information, they just don't know how to process it and put it in order. So you try to draw it out of them, and then you can fill in the blanks, and then they'll remember it. An example would be if a person is sitting there trying to go through the CPR thing and there's a stu- and they're stuck with what do I do next in this sequence? So you start asking them what they think this should happen next and then find out the reason they aren't doing it is because they're, they're, they don't have this put together. They're missing that little piece of information over here and you explore that, let them figure it out for themselves and then they have retention. Then they'll remember it. So when God is asking Elijah, what are you doing here? It isn't so much a question to ascertain his location, but to draw out of him what his feelings, what his actions, and what circumstances led him to this point right here. You remember how Elijah initially responds? The the tone that must have been in his voice, he said, I'm very zealous for you, God. The Israelites have have rejected your covenant, they've torn down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. If we were to paraphrase this, he's saying, I've done everything you've told me to do, and my life keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and now i got Dog the Bounty Hunter out there trying to hunt me down. And God, it's because of you! You know, Jeremiah had a similar experience. He said this about God calling him into the ministry of a prophet. He said, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. And because of this, I am ridiculed all day long, and everyone mocks me. And I don't know in my personal life, when I was going through all this, if I ever verbalized all that to God. But I had some of these same thoughts when all this stuff came down in my life. I had sacrificed a lot for the sake of the church over those last uh, six to ten years. I mean, I had a job offer that could have turned into a six-figure salary, but it would involve me moving to Denver, which would have left that church without a pastor. I had to go back to this being a street paramedic from being a supervisor in a call center. And I, then I had to give up a 24-hour shift, which is 20% of your paycheck, um, every three weeks, so I was off every Sunday. Working in a church with no pay, no benefits, anything. Living sometimes on a razor-thin budget while everyone else around me, they're driving the new cars, they have the new toys. But I'm giving all that up so I can serve God, and now after all of that, I'm left with nothing for my trouble. I don't even get the, the title of pastor or be in the ministry anymore. And this is exactly where Elijah is. There's some attitude in that response. There is a lot of anger and a lot of frustration in his answer to God here. In essence, Elijah is asking a question that many of us probably ask from time to time. God, what possible benefit comes from me serving you? What possible benefit is there? I mean, after all it's said and done, oftentimes my life is worse because I I serve you. And it's not an explanation that Elijah is giving here. It's an accusation against the goodness of God. He, Elijah is having a Job moment. Remember Job? He went through some crazy, hard situations. His family, his property is wiped out. He's left with nothing but an incurable, painful skin disease with a wife telling him, why don't you just kill yourself? And his so-called friends calling him a rotten sinner. But then God shows up. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah here. God shows up. Elijah, you need to go stand by the entrance of the cave because I am is about to pass by. Elijah obeys. And then there is a wind. It's like a hurricane and tornado force wind comes, causes the very mountains that Elijah is standing on to rock, and a quake. Huge boulders flying past Elijah like their straw, but God was not in the wind. With all that mighty display of power that God showed his servant, his presence was not there. Suddenly the mountain quaked hard, huge chunks of rocks falling everywhere, the ground shaking so much that Elijah most likely would have been thrown to the ground, unable to stand under such a tremor. But God was not in the earthquake. With all that display of power, God's presence was not felt. Then suddenly there's fire. Fire falls all around Elijah. Flames of such intensity he can't even open his eyes. He sees the fire, he smells the smoke, he feels the heat. But in all of that, God's presence wasn't there. Elijah is sitting there in a ball. Trembling in fear, wondering what's coming next. Is God going to send a flood? Am I going to be swept away by water? Is he going to send a bear or a lion to tear me apart? Is there going to be a plague or something that falls upon me? What is God going to throw at me next for questioning him? And then a whisper. Elijah. Elijah. God whispered his name. Elijah then felt the overwhelming presence of God enter that cave. The scriptures say in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah completely covers himself before the awesome presence of God. Why did he cover himself? Because the presence of God bring spiritual transparency. Elijah knew that God could see every blemish, every doubt, every fear, every sin in his life, and he covers himself to hide it from God. And the voice speaks again. What are you doing here, Elijah? The first time Elijah answered this was with anger and unbelief. This time, the answer is a confession and repentance. God, I've been very, very zealous for your name. The Israelites, Lord, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars, God. They put your prophets to death with the sword, but now I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And that is the bedrock principle here, that God can't answer our questions until our heart is ready to receive them. Otherwise, it's like Jesus said, it's casting pearls before a or scattering seed on a hard rock ground. God has to get us to see who he really is before that truth can sink in, take root, and bring healing to our souls so that we can produce fruit for the kingdom. When God whispers your name. This thought is encapsulated by one of my favorite songs by my favorite worship group at this time called United Pursuit in their song Met by Love that says we can run straight into your arms unafraid because every time we need you we're met by love. My friends, this life can beat us down by allowing our anger, our disappointment, our hurt, and our frustrations to change what our view of God is. But our God, our Father, is gracious. He wants to bring us back to the place where we can hear him again whisper our name and restore us back to where we need to be. And this is what God is doing with Elijah at this moment. The prophet's heart was being prepared To see and accept. And he's going to see God's provision. And first Elijah's going to see it in his own life. You see, God knows when we are at the end of ourselves. God knows. And that's when you are going to be driven to that place of solitude. Until all that anger, all that disappointment, and even that rage can be worked out. Until you are able to hear God's whisper again. And during that time, God is going to supply the means to get us to where we need to go. And it may not seem like a blessing at the time. It may not seem like a blessing. It may seem like God's mad at you. It might mean losing a job, losing a relationship, losing something that is really important to you. But once you see the plan of God, that loss that you you experience is going to become insignificant compared to the blessing that is coming. But to get there, we have to trust in him that he will supply the spiritual strength for us. God will give you just enough to get you to that place where you're alone and empty and ready to receive from from him. That place where you are ready to hear God whisper your name again. And you would ask yourself, why a whisper? Why does God whisper? Why doesn't he shout? Why doesn't he holler? Why doesn't he do all these huge miraculous things? Why does he need to whisper? Because there's something intimate about someone who loves you whispering your name, isn't it? Most of the time, the first time you hear I love you from somebody you're falling in love with, it was a whisper. When you chuck your child in for the night, you whisper I love you before leaving the room. When you say goodbye to a loved one as they slip into eternity, it's a whisper. The truly intimate, meaningful things in life are often done softly. And God's whisper is meant for you to stop, to clear out all this noise that's in our heart and in our heads, and to bend your ear toward your Father in heaven so that you can hear the lover of your soul whisper your name. And when your heart is right, then God can show you his plan. Because this ground is ready in your heart to receive the seed of his truth, and it's going to now grow in good soil. And that's what happens with Elijah. And finally, God is then able to show him the plan. God shows Elijah that his efforts are not going to be in vain. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shaphet, from Abel, Manoah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any of those who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put to death any of those who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet... I reserve 7,000 in Israel. 7,000 or 7,000 more prophets out there when Elijah thought he was the last one. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. You see, Elijah still had a lot to do for God, didn't he? But he needed the right heart to do it. So God took him aside, he gave him some rest, and got Elijah's heart ready for the last days of his ministry that were going to be greater than all those before and then god would take him directly to heaven someday but it couldn't have happened until elijah was ready to hear god whisper his name some of you right now may be in that spiritual cave some of you may be like elijah questioning your calling questioning what God is doing in your life. You may be tired. You may be exhausted. You may have no idea why you even want to continue with Jesus at this time. So I'm going to invite you to spend some time with him as we prepare to take communion this morning. Let's all rise. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you would spiritually right now bring us all into that cave, Lord. That cave of meeting where we may experience your presence once again. Not in anything that is is extraordinarily obvious, like wind and fire and earthquake, but hearing the gentle whisper of your voice in our spirits once again. Because that one whisper can change our hearts and bring us back to you.